I'm not going to go all night. I re- my daughter was asking me before I came up, why are you pulling out your phone? Because I really do run a stopwatch so I can kind of keep track of how long I'm going. It may or may not mean anything, but I do keep a stopwatch going so I can keep track of where I'm at. So in thinking about tonight and the fact that I've got 45 minutes and what would I like to do, and since I'm talking to leaders and it's kind of our Bible study night, kind of our teaching and learning night, I want to go back and revisit some of the things we talked about last August when I did that uh, August big group learning and we were talking about understanding your Bible. And there are some topics that I hit just kind of briefly at a high level, and I really didn't get to explore the way that I wanted to. And so tonight, we're going to do something that I enjoy doing. It's something that is a Bible study technique, and we're going to practice this tonight. It's something you can do in your own time when you're reading. And I think you'll see as we go through this exercise, it does not take years and years of practice. It does not take some sort of specialized training to be able to do this. This is something any of you can do with your Bible at home, and I hope by the time we're done with this exercise tonight, you'll see, you know what, I can do that. And it'll make your Bible reading and your own personal study time more engaging. And so if I'm going to be scholarly, there's a term for what you've heard me refer to as slow reading, right? We've talked about this several times. This isn't the first time you've heard me say this. We've talked about slow reading. And tonight we're going to practice this slow reading and we're going to do it out of John chapter 9. And so you are welcome to follow along with me either up on the screen or if you've got your Bibles with you, you can pull out your Bibles and go to John chapter 9. And for the next little while, we're going to do a slow reading of John chapter 9. And I'm going to walk you through some of what I do, and I'm not the only one who does this. Other people do when they're just slowly studying the text and they want it to kind of speak for itself and get some things that stand out. I picked a passage of Scripture That's got lots of material in it, so there's a lot of good stuff we can work through. It's also a passage that I think is probably very familiar to most of us. And so I don't think you're going to hear anything tonight new that you've never heard before. But I want to just take some time. We're going to do a slow read of this, see what stands out to us. And I'm going to highlight a few things that we've talked about before last August when we were doing our big group series on understanding your Bible. Now, for those of you who want something a little more scholarly. If you want a more academic term for this, there is a term for this. I have not used this. I don't think I've used this before, but the term that we'll properly call this is narrative criticism. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry about it because it's not important. But if you want some word to describe what it is we're doing here, it's called narrative criticism. And I don't mean criticism in the sense that we're trying to pick apart the Bible. I mean it in the sense of critical thinking skills, the fact that we're gonna study slowly and carefully and methodically. And narrative criticism focuses on the passage or the story that you're reading in scripture. So narrative criticism works best in the passage of the Bible. Think of like the historical books, the gospels, places where you've got a story that's taking place. And when I say story, I don't mean that it's fictional. I just mean that it's a narrative passage. So when I describe a Bible story, I don't mean story in the sense that it's something made up. What narrative criticism does is it treats the author really as a preacher, as a theologian, someone who's trying to convey a theological message. So as you're reading these stories, these biblical passages, You're reading it and you're thinking about, okay, what is the author trying to get across here? What are they trying to teach me? 
What is the message of this story? Not just the fact that some story has been preserved in Scripture, but as the reader or as the listener, what is it that I'm supposed to be learning in this passage? What should be standing out to me? Narrative criticism treats the writers of Scripture as if they were preachers. The Gospels are not just about the life of Jesus. It's not just a record of what he did. It is a proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ and what he came to do for us. And so narrative criticism, and I'm going to stop using that term in a few minutes. That's not the focus tonight, is on the technique narrative criticism. It's just giving you the proper term for it. It's just so you can do this at home in your own time. And the point is that it's going to ask some why questions of Scripture. Why? did the author word the story this way? Why is this character saying this? Or why is this character doing this? It looks at recurring elements that take place. So are there certain characters that keep reappearing? When you think of the Gospels, we're going to just zone in on one story tonight. But you could do this as a slow read, maybe over the course of time, uh, say like a month, And take one gospel, take Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, and just look at, are there any characters that keep popping up over and over and over in that gospel? So what is their role? What are they doing? Are there certain kinds of characters that keep showing up? Maybe it's not one particular character, but this character perhaps represents a certain thing, and they keep showing up over and over. You'll see that tonight when we look in John 9. Are there certain events, certain kind of occurrences that happen over and over and over? The characters are probably the most important element of this because they're models. And I do believe this. In Scripture, when we read about Bible characters, they have been preserved for a reason, primarily to model behavior for us. Sometimes they're modeling things that we should be copying. Scripture instructs us and it teaches us. We look at characters in the biblical stories and it's something we should learn from. It's character traits that we should emulate. And sometimes they're in there because it's absolute what we should not be doing. Okay? So there are places in the scripture where you're reading about something and you're thinking, this is terrible. And that's the point. Because you're not supposed to behave that way. And so it's been preserved for you. To do this, though, and this is why that title... You have to do a slow reading. Slow down. Slow down. Slow down. Many of us are very, very used to these passages. And so we read them and we think, oh, I know this story. And so our mind very quickly kind of glosses over it. Any of you parents out there, have you ever read the same children's book to your child more than once? Maybe over and over, and over, and over again. And it doesn't take very long before you're just kind of half reading that story because you know where it's going, and maybe you're kind of picking up and you're reading it faster just to get through it because you're tired of reading this story. You can tell this has never happened to me as a parent, right? If we're not careful, we can do the same kind of thing when it comes to biblical passages because we become very familiar with the text the more and more we read it. And so there are things that we take for granted. But then when you want to do something like this, you've got to force yourself to slow down and read it very slowly. And then to the best that you can, try to leave your assumptions out. We fill in a lot of blanks. Everybody does this when they read. It's a normal part of reading. It's a normal part of learning. But do your best to leave out as many assumptions as you can 
and just try to read the text as if you were reading it for the very, very first time, but you're reading it carefully, and you're asking yourself, what is this telling me? What am I supposed to be getting out of this? To the best that you can, try to, for lack of a better word, defamiliarize yourself with that text. Read it like it's strange. Read it like it's odd, like it's brand new, like you've never heard this story before. What would stand out to you? And so as you're doing that, look for unusual elements, things that would stick out to you. All right, so a couple quick slides just to give you some context. John 9 is the story of Jesus healing a blind man. Now again, most of us are familiar with that. For those of you who want to dig into this more, I've recommended this book before. You can find this probably used on Amazon or other places. You do not have to have this book. But, and this is one of many, and if you want more suggestions, come talk to me. I can give you others. But the IVP Bible Background Commentary, there's one in the Old Testament. This is the volume on the New Testament. We're in the Gospel of John, so I'm looking in the New Testament. I was rereading again today through its comments on there. It's not so much a commentary on the scriptures as just some of the background information, the cultural things, archaeological information, stuff that's in the background of the story that would have been very, very evident, very obvious to the first century readers, to the first century listeners of this story, things they know and take for granted that you and I probably don't know because we're not familiar with the land of Palestine. We don't know what it looked like 2,000 years ago. We're not familiar with these settings. How many of you know, just out of curiosity, as we get started, where the Pool of Siloam is located? Because that's important to this story. See, that's the kind of thing that would probably be worth learning about. So as you read, even as you're reading, you'll see some location that stands out. This is an important location. So maybe you make yourself a note. Where's the Pool of Siloam? And later as you're reading, you can Google it. We live in the 21st century. All of this information is readily available for free. All you have to do is go look it up. So it'll make a difference in the way you read the story, the more of these background things you understand. A couple words that most of us are very, very familiar with that I want to slow down and give you a little bit more setting, a little more context for as we go into this. This story is going to take place as Jesus is leaving the temple. Okay? Here is a model of what the temple looked like at the time of Jesus. And I apologize, it's a little blurry. I've kind of blown it up. It was a massive structure. The tall part right in the middle is the temple proper. Only the priests would have been allowed to enter that building. But see all that other stuff surrounding it? That's also considered the temple. They called it the temple grounds or the temple mount. We're talking about an area about 40 acres in size multiple square miles. This would be the equivalent of like your county fairgrounds. It was massive. At times of religious festivals, you'd have hundreds of thousands, maybe upward of a million people in that temple ground on any given day during their high and holy festivals and their religious special holidays. So when you read the gospels about Jesus teaching in the temple, it's not like it was him and six people sitting around listening to him. It's him teaching and preaching as thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people walk by during the course of a day. It's massive. Let me give you another model, give you a different idea of it. That little tiny part in this picture, right in the middle, temple proper. 
Only the priests would have been in that. See that massive square around it? That's the temple grounds. There would have been many, many people. There would have been stalls and vendors. There would have been animals. There would have been all kinds of things. That outer wall, it was built up high in the city of Jerusalem. It was one of Herod's greatest accomplishments. He was very proud of this temple. He spent his entire lifetime constructing and working on it. It was a massive, massive complex with multiple entrances and exits. It would have had little side. It would have had gates. It would have had covered porches. So when we read about Jesus being in the temple, we're not talking about a little building. We're talking about an area. And it's an area full of thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It would have been the center, the heartbeat of the city. It would have been extremely full, very busy, lots of people around, very loud, lots of activity going on. The Pool of Siloam. You're going to see that come up in this story in just a minute. Pool of Siloam is important. Where is the Pool of Siloam? Well, if you look in the background of that picture, you'll see kind of that square up towards the top. That's one of the walls of the temple. And what you're looking at is a model of the city of Jerusalem in the first century. And so down towards the bottom, you'll see an arrow pointing to a little square area that's called the Pool of Siloam. Let me give you another picture. It's the part circled or rather squared in that blue square. That's the Pool of Siloam. And again, often the foreground up to the top corner of the picture, there's the temple grounds. So the Pool of Siloam is the other location in this story. It's still within the walled city. So all of this story takes place within walking distance, within a walled city, just outside of the temple grounds. And that's going to be important as we read. And then the other thing, the other word I want you to be familiar with that we read many times and are often familiar with is the word synagogue. So you'll hear the word synagogue show up multiple times in this story. This is the temple proper. There is one temple. It is in Jerusalem. Most religious Jews at the time, if they did not live in the city of Jerusalem, may have come here once or twice a year for religious festivals. If they lived in what we call the diaspora, they've been spread out. They're all over the Roman Empire. They might get to come here once in their lifetime if they saved up enough money to take a pilgrimage. But all over Jerusalem, all over the land of Palestine, all over the Roman Empire, wherever there are Jews, they have many, many, many synagogues. A synagogue is a local gathering place. Here's a model of one, kind of gives you, it's a much smaller building. Basically, it's one large room where they could read the scriptures and they could be taught. But it was not just a building that they used, say, on Saturday mornings when they read the scriptures and came together. It was more like their community center. This is where they taught children during the daytime and they had their education lessons. This is where you would have weddings. This is where you'd have celebrations. This would be where people would come together for something like funeral services. It's the community center. It's the hub of activity. There are many, 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 many synagogues. Here's another model, kind of giving you a layout. That building on the outside edge, you see water in it. That was what they'd call a mikvah. It's where they did their ceremonial washings and their cleansings. That's the precursor to what we associate with baptism. So this synagogue is the local context where Jews meet every single week. 
Your synagogue is important. Your synagogue family is who you're connected with. These are the people you do business with. These are the people you celebrate with. These are the people you learn with. These are the people that you worship with every week. Temple, one location, high and holy place. Synagogue, think of it almost like your local church congregation. But it's even more than a church congregation. It's where all of the city business happened in your local community. There's many, many, many synagogues. And then finally, one more slide before we jump into this and get started. Here are five questions I want you to think about as we read along in John chapter 9 tonight. And again, you don't have to have any special training to do this. You can do this at home on your own as you read narrative passages of Scripture. What is the point of view? And I'm going to come back to these questions after we read it, and I'm going to answer them. I want you to see if you can answer this as we go along. So what's the point of view? What is the setting? Who are the characters? What's the dialogue? What kind of conversations are going on in this story? And then what's the plot? Or in other words, what has developed in this story? Why was this story preserved in Scripture? We have snapshots of the life of Jesus, not a biography. So these snapshots are really important because each story has some specific reason that it was preserved in the Gospels to teach us something. So what's going on? What's the main point, the gist of the story, if you will? So keep these in mind, and now we'll go ahead and jump right in, and we're going to begin discussing John chapter 9. You can follow along up on the screen, or if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along in there. I'm going to read reading out of the New Living Translation, and you will see as we go along, I have pre-highlighted for us, just for the sake of following along with what I'm doing, a few words, and these words are going to show up in blue. And so there are two main words, I'll just tell you up front, that I want you to be listening for. Things that have to do with seeing, and things that have to do with knowing, and see how many times these kind of words pop up in this story. The idea of seeing and the idea of knowing. And already, just even language-wise, you can tell that these are kind of interrelated. To see something, to know something. So let's look at John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As Jesus was walking along, now you can go back later and read John chapter 7 and 8. Likely, this story took place right after John 7 and 8 where Jesus was walking out of the temple grounds. As Jesus was walking along, you can go back and read the end of chapter 8. They were ready to stone him for blasphemy because he just made a clear claim to be God. And he slipped out of the crowds at that temple mount. And so he's just left the temple grounds. Beginning of chapter 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Is Jesus alone in this story? No. Who's with him? His disciples, the people who are close to him. What's their opinion of him? You can tell just by, they refer to him as rabbi, as teacher. So he's in a position of respect. Are they alone as they're walking? No, it's a, it's a crowded city street. And they come across a blind man. In our context today, the closest equivalent we'd have is if you were in a busy marketplace or some crowded section of commerce and you're leaving the mall and there's a homeless person on the street holding a sign asking for money. 
You'd find the lame, the sick, the blind, those who could not walk. They often congregated just outside the temple grounds because they were dependent on people to give them money in order to make a meager living because they couldn't work. So it's not surprising at all that they would be leaving the temple grounds and they would come across a blind person begging. And so they turn to Jesus and they say, why is he blind? Whose fault is this? Is it his fault or his parents' fault? You'd have to dig into this a little more. You can find stuff online and different resources. I can point you towards things. It was a common belief at that time that you could be born already having committed sins and that birth defects, uh, handicap issues, mental issues, various things like that were the result of sin either that you committed in the womb or that your parents committed and therefore the curse of God fell on you. And so they're not being ridiculous. This was a common thought at their time. And so they're asking their teacher, why is he blind? Is it because of some sin he committed, i.e. before he was born? Or is it because of some sin that his parents committed? Now Jesus responds to them. And Jesus says, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. So he's thrown out their assumptions. He said, you're wrong on both accounts. It's not either of those things. Jesus answered, this happened so the power of God could be seen in him. And there's a lot of wordplay in this chapter. The blind man is blind so that God's power could be seen. Verse 4. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming... And then no one can work. Why can no one work at night? You've got to think 2,000 years ago. Why can nobody work at night? Because you can't see. There's no street lights. There's no electricity. There's no modern lighting. Work stops when the sun goes down because now it's dark. And you don't work in the dark. The night is coming when no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world so you see these darkness and lightness things already showing up seeing not seeing blind who can see now he does something really weird then he spit on the ground and he made mud with his saliva and he spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. Does this happen in a moment? No, some time has gone on, right? This isn't a five-second interchange. They've stopped walking. They've paused at this spot. And he's decided to teach another lesson to his followers. Is the blind man deaf, by the way? No. He cannot see can he hear? Yes. How close is Jesus to the blind man when this interaction happens? Very, very close. Close enough he can reach out and touch him and rub spit on his face. Can the blind man hear everything that Jesus is saying? Yes. See what I'm talking about, a slow read? Stuff we don't pay attention to? 
So this blind man hears this teacher and this group standing around him talking. And he hears the group saying, so is this guy blind because of something he did or something his parents did? And then this other person says, no, 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 no. He's not blind because of any of that. He's blind so that God's power can be seen. And then the person who says that stoops down or something. Think the blind man's listening. And he probably hears him spit. It's not exactly silent when you spit. And then he hears something going on. And then the guy stands up. And I don't think he just slaps him. We got to read a little bit between the lines. But he probably asked the man to hold still or can I heal you or something. And he reaches out. The man's blind, not stupid. And now all of a sudden there's something wet and sticky being rubbed all over his face. And this guy is allowing it to happen. We read this story way too fast. Are Jesus and the blind man alone? No. There's a whole crowd of people walking around them. If this story, and likely it does, takes place right on the heels of John 7 and 8, it's the festival of shelters. It's a religious festival. There are hundreds of thousands of people in the city celebrating this religious holiday. So it's not like they're alone on some back alley either. Okay? They're in public. They've probably got a crowd of people now watching this weird spectacle as this guy just spit in the dirt and made mud and then rubbed it all over this other guy's face. I don't care what culture you live in and what time period you live in. This is weird. This is not normal behavior. People don't do things like this. So something very weird is going on in this story. And the author is expecting you as the reader to go, that's really weird. Why would you rub mud on somebody's face like that? Verse 7. Then he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. And Siloam means sent. The author wants to make sure you get that in case you didn't know what that word means. So the man went and washed And came back seeing. Now let's pause here for a moment because we read this part too fast. Where is the pool of Siloam? Where did this interaction take place? As he's leaving the temple. This man did not walk 10 feet away and go wash his face off. Jesus sent him. Now it's still within the city. It's walking distance, but it's not like it was probably just around the corner. He's got to walk a few blocks at a minimum. And there are lots of people everywhere. And he's blind. So either he really knows his way around the city, or probably somebody was with him. And he gets to the pool of Siloam, and it's not a birdbath. It's a pool, like we think a pool. It's a reservoir for holding water. This is a large body of water. Do you think it's empty? Do you think that nobody's around? Does this story take place during the day or at night? During the day. There are lots of people around. There are people who have probably watched this Traveling teacher just spit and rub mud all over this guy's face. 
And then he sends him away some distance and he says, go over to that pool and wash your face. So the man leaves. And he's gone for some length of time. And he shows up at this pool and there's lots of people there. And he washes his, the mud, the spit, off of his face. And when he's done washing his face, now all of a sudden... He can see. What does the blind man do once he can see? He goes back to Jesus. So we've had a trip to the pool, and now we've had a trip back from the pool. What's Jesus doing? Waiting for him to come back. Almost like he expected this to happen or something. Why am I pointing this out? Because go read your gospel slowly and carefully. I'll give you a hint. Go back to John chapter 5. We have Jesus healing another man by a body of water. And this time Jesus leaves and the man does not find him till later. So if Jesus did not want to be found, he could have left. Jesus is waiting for him to return. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Now why do they not recognize him? Because he can see. But once I say this out loud, it sounds really dumb, doesn't it? You know what I never understood, even as a kid, was how Superman could be Clark Kent, and all he had to do was take his glasses off, and nobody could recognize him. It was the lamest disguise in all of comic book history. He takes his glasses off, and he's Superman, and everybody's amazed, and all of a sudden he puts on glasses, and poof, he's a completely different person, and nobody recognizes him. Has the blind man's clothes changed? No. Has it been several weeks? No. Does he sound different? Probably not. What has changed? He's not blind. He took the glasses off. And now nobody recognizes him, right? It's ridiculous. That's the point of the story. So the neighbors, you can see it, all the people around him, they're whispering, is that the guy? I think that's the guy. No, that can't be the guy. This guy can see. No, I'm pretty sure he looks just like that guy. No, he can't be. This guy's walking around on his own. So they're arguing with each other, and they're asking, isn't that the guy? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. (laughs) The amount of disbelief that we do to ourselves when we're confronted with something we don't understand is crazy. And this is the best part. Where is the guy? He's standing right there. But the beggar kept saying, yeah, I'm the guy. And they're going, no, that can't be the guy. This guy can see. And he's saying, it's me. And they're like, no, I don't think so. The guy I know can't see. He's a beggar. He's like, I'm right here, standing in front of you. And the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. He's saying, it's really me. Then they asked, well, who healed you? What happened? 
And he told them, the man they call Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes. And he told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed. And now I can see. Well, where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. So he's on his way back to Jesus. And he can't find Jesus yet. Now, Jesus hasn't disappeared out of the story. Hang with me till the end. Now he can see, but he doesn't know Jesus. This is important, too. Now, don't take this for granted. If Jesus was walking around in the crowd, would the blind man know who he is? He's never seen him before. He's heard him. Jesus healed him. But it's not like he can just pick him out of a crowd and say, that's the guy. He's never seen him before. He was blind. There's all kinds of stuff going on in this story. We just read it too fast. So now people are saying, who did this? And he said, that man called Jesus. Where is he now? I don't know. So before, he was blind. Now he can see, but he doesn't know. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees. Because, you know, somebody's got a tattle. There's always a tattletale in every story. So they take him to the religious leaders, right? Why? Why does it matter that they took him to the religious leaders? Because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. Now, let's slow down and think about an author's point of view. When does this story take place? On a Sabbath day. When did you learn that this story took place on a Sabbath day? After he's healed. Couldn't the narrator have started saying, one Sabbath day as Jesus was walking out of the temple? But the narrator did not do that. Why? It's emphasis. We've delayed some key important piece of information until now because we want to make sure that it's absolutely clear. What does the narrator tell you that's important about the Sabbath? It was on the Sabbath that Jesus what? Made mud, in case you missed it, and healed him. So Jesus has broken two rules on the Sabbath. He made mud and he healed him. If we just slow down and read it carefully, the author's trying to make it clear to you, Jesus has done something very wrong. He made mud and he healed him. Jesus broke the rules, okay? The Pharisees asked the man all about it. And so he told them, he put the mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. And some of the Pharisees said, This man, Jesus, is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. And others said, But how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was a deep division of opinion among them. Are we still on the same day? Yes. Has the setting changed? Not really. 
Maybe they're standing in a building somewhere now. Maybe they're in their local synagogue. There would have been multiple synagogues around the city. But it's still the same day. We're still dealing with the same thing. The neighbors are arguing with each other whether or not this is the same blind man as he's standing there going, no, it's really me. Now they bring him to the people in charge and they want to know what's happened. So he tells them. And now who's arguing? The leadership. Who are they arguing with? Each other. They can't agree on what's just happened. Some of them are saying there's no way this Jesus is a good guy because he's working on the Sabbath. And other people are saying, well, how could he do this if he's just an ordinary sinner? And by the way, is this a light argument going on between them? What does it say? There was a deep division. There's a heated argument going on between the leadership over whether or not Jesus is okay. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind. And they demanded, because, you know, when you get angry and you don't know what to do, just yell louder. And they demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? And the man replied, I think he must be a prophet. Does the man know Jesus? No. Can he even point Jesus out in a crowd? No, he's never seen him. And so the religious leadership asks him, well, what do you think? So keep in mind, they're having this heated argument with each other. The guy's standing there. So they turn back around and they ask the guy who was blind, well, what do you think about him? And so he responds, I think he must be a prophet. Why would he think he's a prophet, by the way? Because he just healed him. Pretty straightforward connection, right? Watch their response. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called his parents. He's saying, this morning I was blind, but now I can see. This causes a huge argument with the religious leadership. So the solution, we're just going to ask your mom and dad. Call mommy. That's exactly right. Let's see what daddy has to say. Because now they've decided it couldn't be that Jesus actually healed him. Why not? Because it happened on a Sabbath. So the alternative is the dude's lying. So let's talk to his parents. So they call his parents in and they asked him, is this your son? What's the obvious answer? Yes. Was he born blind? What's the answer? Yes. If so, how can he now see? We don't like his answer. So now you tell us. How is it he can see? Now here's what's amazing in the story. And there's details that are left out. If you had an adult child who had been blind their entire life. And all of a sudden you got called into court. Because this morning your child was blind and now your child can see. What do you think your reaction would be upon seeing your adult child who can now see? Don't you think you'd be pretty celebratory? Right. But the first thing they get to do is give an answer. And his parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind. But we don't know 
how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. What's mommy and daddy doing? Talk to that guy. He's an adult. He can answer for himself. Not exactly the reaction you'd expect from mom and dad at this point, is it? We're doing a slow reading. Is this the kind of answer that you would expect from his parents? No. You're expecting celebration. You're expecting praise. You're expecting, thank God, this is wonderful, it's a miracle. Instead, we're getting, he's an adult, he can speak for himself. This is odd. This is like as weird as somebody spitting in the mud and rubbing it on some blind guy's face. You're supposed to notice this and go, hmm, that doesn't seem right. Why? Now we get a note from the narrator. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leadership who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. So the narrator wants to make it clear to you in case you missed it. Mama and Daddy are guarding themselves because they don't want to get kicked out of synagogue. So what's the deal about getting kicked out of synagogue? Well, if you're not familiar, Google it. But I'll save you a little bit of trouble. It's like I said already, this is where you go to school. This is where you conduct informal business with your neighbors. This is the hangout place. This is where you worship together. This is excommunication. So the religious leaders have said, anybody who sides with Jesus will get kicked out of your local synagogue. You won't be one of us anymore. So mama and daddy are seeing something miraculous as their child has just been healed. But they're scared to claim it because they might lose their social standing. That's why they said he is old enough. Ask him. So, for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind. Now, they don't believe him the first time, so they ask the parents, and the parents say, yep, that's our son. Yep, he was blind. Don't know how this happened? Ask him. So they call him back in. So he's probably been standing outside the room where they're interrogating mom or dad or something like that, and they say, King James, give God the glory. New Living Translation, God should get the glory for this because we know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. They know, they know that Jesus is a sinner. So tell the truth. God should be glorified in this. What really happened? Watch the formerly blind man's response. They know that Jesus is a sinner. His response. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied. But I know this. I was blind. I think he's pretty certain on that fact. I know this. 
I was blind. And now I can see. Don't miss what he's overstating on purpose. The blind man says, I don't know what to tell you boys. Here's what I do know. This morning, I could not see. Now, I can. But what did he do to you, they asked. How did he heal you? How did he heal him? He's already told them twice. He spit on the ground and made mud and he rubbed it all over my face and I went down to the pool of Siloam and I washed. Why do you think they're asking him this again? Because they don't believe him. They don't like his answer. They don't want to hear what he's telling them. But what did he do to you, they asked. How did you heal him? Look, the man exclaimed. So is he getting frustrated yet? Would you be getting frustrated yet at this point? Look, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Somebody's done. They are wasting his afternoon. Look, boys, my whole world just changed today, and I can see for the first time, and I am done arguing with you. You believe me or you don't. I already told you what happened. So why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Now, I'm reading a little bit between the lines, but I don't think I'm reading very much. I don't think this was a kind, soft, passive answer. I think he's done. He's very, very done at this point. Then they cursed him. And this also tells you that it was not a kind, soft answer. Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. My daddy's bigger than your daddy. That's what we're, my dad can beat up your dad. That's the card we're pulling. It's the playground thing, right? Like, you belong to him, but we, we are disciples of Moses. What are we doing? We're pulling a trump card. We know that God spoke to Moses. Now, I love this. But we don't even know where this man comes from. See, now they discredit him. He doesn't count. He doesn't have a pedigree that we agree with, which, by the way, let me go back to verse 24. God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. One conversation later, verse 29, we don't even know where this man comes from. So they know he's a sinner. We don't know who he is, but we know he's a sinner. We know he can't be good. So they know, but they don't know. So they're not even consistent with the way they're interrogating this young man. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. No kidding. Why, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from? Now, who's in the authority seat at this point? Who has taken charge of this conversation? We know, he's jumping in the we know game now too, right? We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he could not have done it. 
Who's in charge? It's the Pharisees. Who's leading at this point? It's the blind man. Who's the teacher at this point? Who knows something? It's the blind man. How do you think they're going to respond to this, by the way? We're doing a slow reading. You're reading this for the first time. You've never heard this story before. How do you think the religious leaders are going to respond to him after he just dressed them down for what they already know? Do you think this is going to go well for the formerly blind man? Hmm? You were born a total sinner, they answered. Why are you trying to teach us? Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. You were born a total sinner. Why would they say something like that? Does this sound familiar? Has this come up before? Back to verse 2. Rabbi, his disciples asked, Why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Common thinking in that time period. If someone was born with a debilitating handicap or some other issue, it was their fault. Or it was their parents' fault and they were cursed in the womb. So they know everything. They're in charge, right? And they know Jesus is a sinner. They don't know where he comes from, but they know he can't be from God. And they also know that this blind man who's no longer blind, but we don't believe you, is also a total sinner, and he's been a total sinner from birth. Why has he been a total sinner from birth? Because he was blind. But we don't believe you. So which one is it? So you can see this story is full of irony. There's all kinds of back and forth going on here. Now let's jump back to the story. So they kick him out of the synagogue. Now what? He's been blind his whole life and he can't work and he's had to beg. He's been on the edge of society. In one afternoon, he gains his sight. He goes to court for being healed. He gets interrogated twice. His parents get put on trial. Then he's fed up, and so he answers them because they keep asking him. And as a result of answering them, the response is, get out of here, you're a total sinner. And they kick him out of the synagogue. So what do you do now? When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man. And he asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now picture this. He's been kicked out of the synagogue, and so now he's back in the city, and he's trying to figure out what to do next. <clears throat> and somebody approaches him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Does the blind man know that this is Jesus? Maybe. Maybe not. He might recognize his voice, but has he seen Jesus before? No. So now somebody approaches him and says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man answered, well, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. So I'm reading a little between the lines, but I'm taking it that he does not recognize Jesus. 
Because his response is, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. Now watch. We're back to this seeing, knowing language. You have seen him, Jesus said. And he is speaking to you. You got to go back to August, son of man. What's the deal with that? Well, go look it up. Son of man is how Jesus referred to himself over and over and over in the Gospels. Son of man comes from Daniel 7. Prophetic language speaking about this future Messiah. That young man knew that term. Do you know the son of man? And he's saying, I, I want to meet him. I want to believe. And Jesus said, you have seen him. And he is speaking to you. Now, what's his response? How would you respond at this point if you're that individual? Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said. And he worshiped Jesus. We lose this word, too, because we think worship is like, thank you so much. I'm really glad you did. No, 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 no. This is a worship position. This man realizes who he's just encountered and who has healed him, and now he can see him. And when he puts it together, he responds correctly, and he worships him. And then Jesus told him, I entered this world to save everybody. No, look at what he says in this passage. I entered this world to render judgment and to give sight to the blind and to show those who think they can see, who think they can see, that they are blind. I came to give sight to the blind and to show the people who think they see that they are blind. And some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, Are you saying we're blind? Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Are you saying we are blind? Jesus' response, If you were blind, literally, physically, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied. But you remain guilty because you claim you can see. All right, I got to wrap it up. I've been going 55 minutes, but I love this story. There's so much good stuff here. And we overread it, and we read it too fast and miss some of the fun stuff that's going on. So let's go back to our questions. I'm going to try to do this part in five minutes. Try. What is the point of view of this story? I would say from above. The narration is told from third-person perspective. The narrator knows the whole story before it starts, right? The narrator's telling you a story. Narrator has held back certain details, like we're halfway through the story, and then all of a sudden, oh, yeah, by the way, he did this on a Sabbath. That's why everybody's angry. His parents answered that way because they were scared of getting kicked out of the synagogue. So this is a story where the narrator, the point of view is third-person narrator. It's from above. What's the setting? The story seems to take place as Jesus and his disciples are on their way out of the temple after arguing with the Jews. It's 
symbolic of the religious leadership, the Jews. The setting is actually determined, you go back to chapter 8, and you see how it continues on from chapter 8. It's pretty much in one setting. This whole thing pretty much took place probably in an afternoon, okay? Some of the temporal details are a little vague, and John's like that. It's really hard to put together a timeline in John. He's very vague and fuzzy on timing details, and that's on purpose, but that's a different lesson for another night. So it's possible that when Jesus found the blind man, it might have been sometime later, but the story seems to imply this is Jesus leaving the temple. If this story is a continuation of the narrative that we find in John chapter 7 and chapter 8, it might have even been the last day of the week-long festival of shelters, or sometimes it's called the festival of booths, or it's called the festival of tabernacles. You can go back and read John chapter 7, and specifically verse 2 and verse 37 that point that out, and then you jump over into John 8, verses 20 and 21, and then John 8, 49. I didn't go through all that. I'm running out of time. The point is go back and read John 7, 8, and 9. 7 and 8 leading up to 9. And if it is all one continuous event, we're on the last day of this week-long celebration. To be fair, I say if, because again, some of the temporal details are a little bit vague. But if that is the case, (laughs) and I personally think it is, then this story gets even better. And I left this out until now, because he tells the young man to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And this is Jesus just having fun. Because if it was the last day of the Festival of Shelters, In the Festival of Shelters, the Pool of Siloam is where they gathered ritual holy water in preparation for their celebration as they ended this festival. And there would have been a priestly line that had gone down, and they would have made a big show, almost like a parade, through the city, bringing this water back up to the temple. And so he spits and he makes mud on a Sabbath. Get the picture here. And then he rubs this dirt all over this guy's face. At the height of a religious festival, he says, Go wash off in the baptistry over there. (laughs) Jesus is having fun. It would not have been alone. Now, to be fair, I don't know for certain that this was on the last day of that festival. But the kid side of me really believes that Jesus did this on the last day of the festival and had a lot of fun telling this dirty blind man to go wash the mud off his face in the pool of Siloam where they're having special religious festival services. Because Jesus absolutely would do something like that. Who are the characters? Let's think through this. We have a narrator. We have Jesus. We have a blind man. Who's the main character in this story? The blind man. He develops, if you will, as the story unfolds. He transforms after encountering Jesus. And not only does he gain his physical sight, he gains spiritual insight as well. By the end of the story, it's the blind man who can see and who can see. It's the blind man who knows who Jesus is. Who else is in the story? We have the neighbors of the blind man, and they're almost like comic relief as they're whispering in the corner. Is that the guy? I think that's the guy. No, that can't be the guy. The guy we know he can't see. And he's standing right there going, no, I'm the guy. And they're going, no, I don't think that's the guy. Right? We have the Pharisees, kind of the bad guys of the story, if you will. The irony, which is very thick all throughout the story, is that the Pharisees, as the religious leaders, can clearly see who Jesus is. They've been watching him. They don't like him. They can see who Jesus is, but they can't see. 
Jesus heals the blind man, and they cannot see past the fact that he was working on the Sabbath. Jesus made mud, and he healed somebody. The narrator points that out. Surely a righteous man of God would not do that on a Sabbath. You have the parents of the blind man. Are the parents painted in a good light in this story? They're really not. They're scared, and maybe that's somewhat understandable, but the author, the narrator, if you will, is pointing out they're responding. They're not celebrating the fact that their son can see. They're scared they're going to get kicked out of the synagogue. They're being wimps. Yeah, as Elder just said. That's a Michigander talk. They're being wimps, right? You're not supposed to emulate the parents. It's a warning to the people reading. Following Jesus will cost you something. It's worth it, but you may lose social standing. And then you have the Jews, which probably also refers to the Pharisees. This phrase happens over 60 times in the Gospel of John alone. And I don't have time to get into all of that, but maybe that should be a red flag. As in a, hmm, this word keeps popping up over and over and over and over. Maybe this word means something. Why does John keep using the word the Jews? Because he talks about the people of Jerusalem, but then he says the Jews. So he has a specific group of people in mind when he says the Jews. I'll give you a hint. It's the religious leaders. I'll give you another hint. John is not meaning it as a compliment when he calls them the Jews. Then think about the dialogue. We have Jesus talking to his disciples. Then we have Jesus and the blind man. Then the blind man and his neighbors. Then the blind man and the Pharisees, part one. Then the blind man's parents and the Pharisees. Then the blind man and the Pharisees, part two. Then Jesus and the blind man again, now that he can see him. And then Jesus and some Pharisees. Are you saying we're blind? You said it. And then the plot. The plot quickly moves through the story of a man who was blind and can now see. And you can stand with me as I'm coming to a close. At the surface... This sounds like a story about Jesus healing a blind man. Now, we just took an hour and slowly walked through this on purpose. Is this just a story about Jesus healing a blind man? No. I hope you got more out of it than that. No, that's not what this is just a story about. This is a story full of irony. And what the narrator is asking the audience is, who is blind in this story? Who's blind? It's the religious leaders. That's the irony of the story. The only person in the story who can see is the blind man. And everybody who can see is blind. As the story progresses, it becomes obvious that what's going on physically is the opposite of what's going on spiritually. It's the blind man who can see. And it's the religious leaders who are blind. It's not so much a story about a blind man as it is a story critiquing the religious leadership. And by the end of the story, the reader is supposed to be thinking, these Pharisees are really missing the point. And that is the point of the story. You can do this. This is just one example. But you can go through your Bible. You can read these narrative passages. The Gospels are a great place to start. And just read them slowly. Ask yourselves these kind of questions. And my hope and prayer is that when you do this, these things begin to really come alive to you. There is so much there that often we miss just because we're reading too fast. 
Thank you, Lord, for your inspired word. Thank you for the truth of your scriptures, these incredible stories.